Hello, and welcome to the Brain Mastery Podcast, brought to you by ABI Wellness. This series features renowned experts on brain injury, brain health, and rehabilitation. Be sure to visit abiwellness.com for more resources. All right. Welcome back to the Brain Mastery Podcast. Today's episode is going to be focused on again, brain health. However, it's going to take a slightly different, unique lens today. Today's episode is actually going to be, we're going to do what they call an an episode drop. And with our our friend James Durham with TBI One Love, which is a, a wonderful podcast in brain health and brain injury, specifically traumatic brain injury, James recently had an episode that I think holds such great relevance for our audience that I wanted to share it here for each of our listeners. So this episode, we're going to be getting into the concept of, yes, traumatic brain injury, but also really looking at caregivers and understanding just how complex a brain injury can be for the families and friends and and community around that individual that is going through that rehabilitation. So this particular podcast from TBI One Love is with Dr. Noel Carlosi, who is an associate professor of of physical medicine and and rehab at the Center for Outcomes Development and Application at Michigan Medicine. She's a leading author and is somebody who really understands the caregiver perspective and provides some great tips and education and inspiration and really hope for the caregiver. So I hope that, you know, you enjoy this episode. I think it's very relevant given the topic of the Brain Mastery podcast. I want to thank James for his collaboration on this, and we really hope that you enjoy uh, this podcast. Love Talk Radio. Good evening, survivors, caregivers, and all of the TBI One Love podcast followers that are being part of our national and international movement to spread a positive form of hope, inspiration, and education for those that have been touched by a brain injury, and of course, awareness and prevention to the general public. Tonight, we have a phenomenal guest. Our guest is Dr. Carlosi, who is an associate professor of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation, Director of the Center for Clinical Outcomes, Development and Application at Michigan Medicine, and she is also the lead author in a new special edition of Rehabilitation Psychology that examines quality of life and caregivers of people with a brain injury. So I hope that everyone is enjoying not only their evening, but ready to tune in and get some key elements that are very important, not only for brain injury recovery, but also for caregivers. So without further ado, let's get this show started. Dr. Carlotti, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Well, I really appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule and being on tonight's show. It's my pleasure. So you heard me give some brief inspirational information about your movement in you, but could you please introduce yourself and tell us a little bit more about who you are? Sure. Yes. So I am a clinical psychologist by training, although most of my 
um, clinical practice has been in neuropsychology. So paper and pencil tests um, to sort of help give us a little bit of insight into going on in people's brains. Um, and then I guess on a personal note, I have two kids. I have a three-year-old, Finian, and a seven-year-old, Kieran. Um, I have two Siamese kittens that are about eight months old and have a lot of energy, uh, a dog named Snap, who is due to have puppies in a couple of months. That's crazy. Um, and a soccer player. So before COVID, I used to play soccer three nights a week. Of course, we've been sidelined for a while, but I'm hoping to get back on the pitch uh, this summer. Wow, well, that's phenomenal, and especially with this COVID, everyone's got some differences going on, but thankfully that was so last year, and this year we understand COVID and the differences, so we're more advanced. Yeah, hopefully, and hopefully okay. we won't need to be more advanced for much longer. I agree, yes, ma'am. So with, with going in and you heard me speak about your movement, I'm just curious, what initially drew you into psychology and then ultimately research. So I think, you know, for almost as long as I can remember, I knew that I was interested in psychology or in psychiatry. Actually, when I was in middle school, I remember a guidance counselor asking me what I wanted to be when I grew up. And I told him that I wanted to be a psychiatrist. Um, I'm a psychologist, but at the time I wanted to be, I thought I wanted to be a psychiatrist. And um, he said to me, well, why psychiatry and not psychology? And I said, well, because psychiatrists make more money. Um, and then, you know, I ended up, I, I ended up in, in college not wanting to take uh, an 8 a.m. lab course on a Friday. And so, um, which was one of the prerequisites for medical school. So, I, you know, I ended up going in the direction of psychology. And then I know we're going to talk a little bit today about my working caregivers and my measurement development work, but I, I think just to shed some light on how I got interested in sort of measurement, measurement development. Um, when I was in high school, I was taking a psychology class. And as part of that class, we had to take career aptitude tests. So I want to say it was several hundred questions. Um, and it was supposed to tell me what type of career I should have and what I would be good at. And I remember being really annoyed that I had to take this test because I already knew I already knew I was interested in psychology and that was what I wanted to do. Um, but I had to take this test anyway. And as I was taking the test, I, you know, there were some questions that just didn't seem relevant to what my career should be. And one of them that stuck out in my mind at the time was a question that says, I like hot dogs better than hamburgers. And I looked at the question and I couldn't figure out like what this had to do with my career aptitude. Um, not to mention that I like both hot dogs and hamburgers. So I was, I didn't know how to answer the question. Um, so finally I chose one, say I chose hot dogs and, you know, went on with the test. Well, about, I don't know, 50 or 50 items later or so, because again, it was a pretty long test. I, the question came up again, only this time it said, I like hamburg hamburgers better than hot dogs. And I was like, wait a second, didn't I already answer this question? I thought it was stupid the first time I answered it. So I went back, made sure that like it was the same question, that I wasn't just misremembering it. It was the same question, although hot dog and hamburger were switched and which ones came first. Um, 
And so I answered the opposite of what I answered before. And that question, and there were several types of questions like that that came up multiple times on the test. Every time I saw it, I got a little bit more annoyed and I contradicted myself. So a few weeks later, when we got the test results back, it turned out I had invalidated the test. Because I, those were not questions to tell you whether or what my career aptitude should be. They were questions about whether or not I was responding in a consistent way. Um, and I actually was responding in a consistent way, except when I got to questions that I thought were, um, were worth me responding consistently to. So, um, so I invalidated the test and they couldn't tell me what I could, what I was supposed to be when I grow up. And um, I already knew, so it, it was fine, but sort of my first experience test experience where I, you know, I, I didn't actually understand at the time that they were just trying to see if I was giving valid responses. Um, but it sort of drew me to, you know, wanting to improve measurement um, and do things a little bit better. And having that mindset is very important. Yeah, it was, it, it was, uh, it was just funny. But I, I would have never thought at the time I would go into measurement, um, but it's sort of my earliest experience with um, sort of feeling a little bit adversarial about what I was looking at and and wanting to do better. Exactly. And that's something we all need to always remind ourselves is it's not the end of the road. We need to continue of wanting to do better every day. Absolutely. Speaking of doing better. I was just curious, and I'm sure our listeners are as well, how did you get involved in research in traumatic brain injury and ultimately caregiver research as well? And the reason I wanted to ask also about caregiver research is because naturally the main focus is only the survivor and their steps, but it's very important also that caregivers get addressed. Yeah, absolutely. So I, um, when when I actually when I went into psychology, um, I knew I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to, to sort of. I got interested in the brain, and so I was sort of drawn to neuropsychology and um, research. So I was really fascinated with the research process. When I went, uh, I eventually did a research fellowship, and that was actually in the area of Huntington's disease. But I, I was. Um, Fascinated by the process of research, being able to ask a question and answer it and then sort of come up with new questions or oftentimes the answer just created more questions. And the person I was working with at the time moved to Australia. Um, and so I had an opportunity to take a, a job in Australia that um, as somebody who's a little bit resistant to change, um, that was a little bit too much transition for me. So I ended up at the Kessler Foundation in New Jersey working with Dr. David Tulsky. And he was doing, he had two different measurement studies he was working on. And one of those two studies was um, to develop the TBI qual, traumatic brain injury quality of life measurement system. So it's a health related quality of life measurement system that was focused specifically on people with brain injury. And so that was sort of my first foray into working with individuals with brain injury. As a part of that study, I ran a, a series of focus groups um, with people with brain injuries where we asked them, you know, what's important to you related to your quality of life? And, you know, we learned that 
we were learning from the key stakeholders themselves, the people with a brain injury, what was important to them. And this is sort of a shift. I think historically we used to do measurement development um, by us as clinicians, just sort of, you know, brainstorming about what we thought was important to patients. Um, but this is really an opportunity to give the patients themselves a, a voice and tell us sort of what was most important to them. So through that work, I got exposed to both the measurement development process and started a lot working a lot more frequently with people with brain injury. Um, and my neuropsych training, like again, as I said, I'm interested in the brain. I'm interested in how 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 things work within the brain, and so it sort of sort of met two needs for me. And as I was doing that work, um, David was contacted by somebody at Walter Reed who said, "Hey." We were just charged with this congressionally mandated study. It was a 15-year study, and part of that congressional mandate was to focus on caregivers, uh, caregivers of traumatic brain injury specifically. And they were trying to design a study to evaluate how quality of life is affected by caring for someone in the military who has a brain injury. Mm -hmm. um, and they were looking to see what measures exist. And you know there are some good there are some good general measures out there, but nothing that really captures the unique aspects of brain injury, um, right? So most caregiving groups are caring for people who sort of have a slow progression. So Alzheimer's disease, it doesn't like happen like in a second all of a sudden, as opposed to a, a, some sort of traumatic injury, and so. Um, so the so the the measures that were available weren't quite weren't quite the best match for really understanding what these caregivers go through and what they experience, and so um, that became sort of my charge. Okay, we don't have a good measurement system to that captures what's most important to caregivers, um, and. And so I submitted a grant. Um, we ended up getting funded by both the National Institute of Health, the National Institute of Nursing Research at the Institute of Health, and um, the Defense and Veterans Brain Injury Center also funded some of this research. And so we were um, we were fortunate enough to get this immense support from both federal agencies to help us develop a system that could capture the important aspects of health-related quality of life for both civilian and military caregivers. Wow. And I was, yeah, I was really excited to do this because, you know, I, I think that, uh, you know, caregivers have been an underserved population. We focus so much on the person with the injury, and rightfully so, right? There's a lot of treatment and rehab needs. Um, but, uh, you know, oftentimes these caregivers are thrust into this role um, that they're not prepared for, and they don't have a lot of tools in their toolkit to sort of help them transition to this new role. And so it was a great opportunity to, to um, work with a, an underserved population. I agree. Yeah, it's something that is well un underserved and something that needs to be addressed. And I'm sure that it's going to always continue to climb of the attention span that caregivers need because there's more than one person affected by a brain injury and caregivers drastically are because to give their survivors the correct amount of care attention etc they also have to change from their both personal and professional life schedule to make sure that the proper care is needed which is why you know job changes have to happen their normal 
routine that they do in and outside their home has to change. And unfortunately, when they can't afford to do that on any areas of adaption, that is why a large amount of survivors get placed in the proper care unit or sadly enough, a nursing home, not in a negative aspect that step takes place, but it, it's again, to give them the proper care, but it also kind of separates that family bond to some extent. And then that continues to grow the wrong way. Yeah. And it, it, puts, it puts an immense amount of strain on the entire family. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it's, it's a huge, as you well know, obviously I'm, I'm, I'm speaking to the expert here. Um, but yeah, it, it puts, it puts a, str a strain on the entire family and, and every, you know, everything shifts, not just for the person with the injury, but for those individuals that surround you. Mm -hmm. Amen. I agree. And I know from personal experience and so do you with your studies, Speaking of studies, could you tell us a little bit more about your work development, new measures for caregivers? Yeah, so um, developing new measures is actually a pretty involved process. And um, so it involves at least, and I want to say doing it the right way, not that there's a wrong way to do it, but um, it involves, you know, the first step, and I mentioned this before, is meeting with the stakeholders themselves, so the people with a brain injury, or in this case, the caregivers of the people with a brain injury, and asking them what's important and relevant to them. Because any measure that you develop, you want to be relevant, right? You don't want to be asking people questions that are not related to their, their experience or, or not about things that they value. Because what I value as a clinician and what you may value as a person with a brain injury may be different, right? So we really want to make sure that we engage those key stakeholders, the people that are actually going to be um, the focus of this new system. Uh, and then the type of measures that I develop are, are we call them computer adaptive tests or smart tests. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think that's really kind of cool because you know, traditionally, I talked about that aptitude test that was like several hundred items long, and it just takes a really long time and a lot of attention, a lot of focus to get through several hundred questions. Um, and what a smart test does is it starts with several hundred questions and it asks you a question, you answer it, and then it says, oh, for you, the next best question is this. And usually in as few as six to eight items, we can get a pretty precise estimate of what that person's quality of life is, rather than having to give them all three or 400 questions to get to that same answer. So mm -hmm. it's a sort of more, um, it's a more efficient way, a less burdensome way of assessing um, self-report measures. So in order to do that though, in order to sort of develop these smart tests, you actually have to test all of the items in a much larger group of people. And the type of statistics, the type of math that we use to do this development, we need about five to 600 people um, to take all of the items so we can better understand the relationships between and among the items so that we can program that smart test. Um, and so the second step of the process is really getting five to 600 caregivers of people with traumatic brain injury to take a really long survey so that we can ultimately develop a much shorter, much more efficient survey. Um, and then sort of the, the third part of the process, and this is sort of more the, um, the academic exercise, is, is to 
to look at sort of the different properties of the test. We want to know that the test is reliable, meaning that it gives us the same response, the same like score each time we give it. We also want to know it's valid, that it's actually measuring what it's intended to measure. Um, and so there are different types of studies we then do to sort of look at those types of things to make sure that we have a really good measure. And basically, the better your measure is, the more sensitive it is to capturing subtle or small changes over time. Um, and the fewer people you need for a study to see whether or not a treatment is working. And so sort of from so, you know, measurement is, is not a means to an end, but it helps us sort of evaluate whether or not a treatment is really working. Is it really not working or, or is it really working? And so um, this is what we use to tell us whether or not something is working, or it's one of the tools we use to tell us whether or not a treatment is working. Um, so as part of our measurement work in caregivers, we talked to caregivers uh, civilian caregivers and caregivers of service member veterans to find out what was most important to them. And we identified constructs. So when I talk about health-related quality of life, I'm talking about sort of a multidimensional construct. Mm -hmm. um, so for me, for me, quality of life is sort of the impact that in this case, the caregiving role has on my mental health, my social health, and my physical health. And so we we looked and you know there we picked measures that addressed those different constructs for people for caregivers with of people with brain injury and we also identified several areas where there was room for new measures so measures that um could capture some outcomes that were important for these caregivers that didn't already exist um and so things like caregiver stress or strain or the feelings that caregivers had about um, maybe being trapped and not being able to leave the person with the injury alone. Um, you know, caregiver anxiety, worry that the person with the injury is going to get hurt again, feelings of loss. So this idea that, um, well, feelings of loss both for their own future, you know, a lot of the, the caregivers we talked to were ready to retire. Or, you know, they had a career and, and they had to change directions in order to help make sure that they had the optimal environment for the person with the injury, that they could have the space, time and space to help care for that individual. Um, and feelings of loss for the, for the person with the injury themselves, because, you know, in a second, everything changed. Mm -hmm. You may have been on one, one trajectory and then it changed and now you're on a different trajectory and the things that you were going to do um, have to shift. So we, we focused on developing new measures, new questions that would help tap into those, those aspects of caregiver quality of life um, that were most important, or that we heard from them that was most important. And, and we tried to use their own words as much as we could when we were developing those measures. And then I guess the, the other thing is just sort of a shout out, like I, I can't do this work alone. So all of this work has been done in sort of a large team. So I have a number of collaborators across the country that helped um, both, both get caregivers engaged and participating in the study and helped with the statistics wow. and the, the specialized expertise that we needed. 
Um, but also caregivers across the country. So we were able to engage a very sort of diverse group of caregivers. Um, you know, we had sites in Texas and New Jersey and Michigan. Um, so we, we have some nice representation um, across the country of what caregivers' experiences were. Wow, that's phenomenal. You know, and what, what really motivated you with your recently funded NIH study of improving the outcomes for care partners of people with a brain injury? So the measures that I developed um, as part of, or our team developed in the first phase, so now we have the outcome measures, but really the, the, the idea was to write, understand and improve caregiver quality of life. Um, so now that we have the tools to see whether or not treatments are working, the next logical step, and I think the more important step, is to start looking at caregivers and seeing, are there some skills, there are treatments we can um, provide that can help give caregivers more skills to help them in their caregiver role to maximize their quality of life. Um, so now that we have the measures, we were focusing on treatments. I know that caregivers are overwhelmed. They have a lot of responsibilities. Um, they, time, time is, you know, very, <laughs> there's not a lot of it. People, caregivers frequently talk about wanting more hours in the day. So we wanted to make sure that we had a, um, that we had something that was low burden that wouldn't take a lot of the caregivers' time. Um, and, and what we did is we developed a study um, very similar to a design that that is used for a drug study when you develop, um, when you're testing a medication or a drug. Um, and basically, we have half of our group in a randomized, it's a randomized control trial. So half of the group gets the intervention, the other half doesn't. Um, and then we compare to see, did the group that got the intervention do better? Do they have better quality of life? Um, or do they report better quality of life after being in, engaged with this intervention than the, the group that didn't? And the, the intervention itself is really targeted at improving self-care, encouraging caregivers to take time for themselves to take care of, to take care of their own self-care. Um, because we know if we can improve caregiver self-care and the caregivers are feeling better, the person with a brain injury also does better. And so th this, so this study itself involves um, caregivers wear Fitbit. So that helps us, that helps us and the caregiver look to see, our, you know, what type of physical activity are they getting? Um, how much sleep are they getting? And they also um, fill out self-report surveys every day. So there's three questions that ask them about their mood. Um, and, you know, they, there's a platform that sort of, sort of shows them how much sleep they're getting on average, what their mood is on average, what their physical activity is on, on average. Um, and then we use that data to sort of drive the intervention. And it's, it's, a, the, it's a JEDI, a just-in-time adaptive intervention, which is a really fancy word. But basically, it means it's a, it's a personalized intervention. So it uses your data as a caregiver to give you self-management prompts, so self-care prompts. So for instance, it might say, on average, you got less than six hours of sleep last night, um, and it, it, or last night, or last week, or last month. 
and then give suggestions for how you might increase your sleep to help you feel better. So maybe try minimizing screen time 15 minutes before bed. So when people get these little prompts, they're just, they're like a sentence. Um, and they're, they, they're, um, they'll use the previous data to sort of guide the prompt, both what the prompt says and sort of what we call the level of the prompt. So somebody who's not getting enough sleep um, is going to get a prompt that's sort of more, um, you know, try going to bed early versus somebody who is already getting, say, at least seven or eight hours of sleep. And then they might get a prompt that's more more like, you know, you, looks like you're getting a good amount of sleep. Keep up the good work. Um, keep on getting those Z's. So the prompt itself is tailored to sort of the intensity of the prompt is tailored to how well the person is already doing. So if you're doing a good job getting physical activity, it's not going to tell you you need to get more physical activity um, or more steps in type thing. Um, and so it uses your data to sort of guide what level to personalize the prompt that you see. Wow. Um, and with those different steps and obviously the examples you just shared, I think you basically just ex explained what kind of impact you believe that this will have on both caregivers and their families. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that, um, I mean, we hope that, we hope that one, the intervention works and that these sort of low touch, soft, look, there's, there's sort of soft touches, you know, we're not making people fill out long surveys every day. We're not making, you know, you're not seeing a therapist to talk with them one-on-one. -on -one. All of those things can be helpful and improve quality of life. So don't get me wrong, but this is just sort of just little suggestions that we hope over the course of the study um, help caregivers to feel a little bit better, feel a little bit more supported, feel a little bit more um, like they have the tools that they need to take care of themselves because, you know, once, we know that you need to take care of yourself before you can really take care of somebody else True. Um, it, or, or to maximize sort of what you can do. And I think of that just in my day-to-day -day life. Like if I don't get enough sleep, I'm much more short and snippy with my kids, right? So um, I'm a much better parent when I am able to take care of myself and I'm feeling good about myself than if I'm, if I'm not. And so that's, that's not unique to, to, caregivers of brain injury, but I think it's sort of relevant to anybody to anybody in, in sort of optimizing how you focus and, or how you um, focus. I know what you're saying. Like no, how yeah. well you can do in real life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I agree. You know, speaking of doing well, that's it. In all areas of life, that's it. very rewarding and everyone has their own set schedule and type of standards. So, I'm curious, what do you find most rewarding about your work with caregivers? So I think for me, it's the fact that it's an underserved population um, that by helping the caregiver, we're not only helping the caregiver, we are helping the person with a brain injury. Um, you know, this is a group that just gets so little support. Um, and they're so appreciative of any sort of focus and attention that we can give to them um, and any tools, you know, that we can help provide. So I find it, you know, super, super rewarding to one, focus on a group that's been historically ignored, at least in the research context, um, and that 
it's a group that is so excited to to have somebody finally paying attention and you know trying to help help improve not just the person with a brain injury but the whole family system amen there you go now speaking with brain injury and the whole system and how we discussed how it doesn't affect just one person it's a wide range what is something that you have been able to learn from your caregiver work that really surprised you as a clinician i think a lot of times i focus on the negative right i focus on people's stress people you know depression anxiety and while we heard caregivers talk about all of those types of things um, we also heard caregivers talk a lot about the positive aspects of caregiving um, and I, I think for me that that was it was somewhat surprising uh, i i think the example that comes to mind was one of our military focus groups um, we, we had a caregiver who was talking about how her service member veteran he was he was injured in the course of serving his country and you know now it is her time to serve her country and to to take care of this person who was helping to protect all of us and you know so now this was her opportunity for service and for giving back and so i was really sort of touched by a lot of the the more the positive things that people said because you know again we expect caregiving to be stressful um but but the stories of sort of faith and resilience um that we heard from these caregivers it's just very very inspiring and humbling that is very true it is very inspiring and humbling what caregivers do and also survivors i mean on both sides of the table are that same way absolutely what type of differences did you see in your research between caregivers of civilians and caregivers of service members or veterans? The, both, both groups had a lot, a lot in common. So I actually think they had more in common than sort of the differences that we saw. But that being said, there were factors that were definitely unique to military caregivers i think some of that had to do with the slightly different populations so we were looking at um the, the military group that we were looking at most of these were they were active members you know and they, they've recently sort of been transitioned to veteran status so so sort of a new it was a group that was in transition um, so we were looking at the more recent conflicts as opposed to like um, veterans from earlier conflicts. Mm -hmm. So we saw a lot of poly trauma um, and, you know, people are surviving things now that they didn't survive previously. Um, and so we had a lot of sort of folks that were caring for an individual with a complex injury. So there was a lot of of folks with brain injury who also had post-traumatic stress disorder, who also had amputations and other physical injuries. Um, and it's not to say that you don't see complex injuries in the civilian population, but I think the flavor was just a little bit, bit different because of that really high rate of post-traumatic stress that 
coincides with traumatic brain injury in the military population. Um, and those caregivers really, they talked a lot about sort of feeling like they were constantly walking on eggshells and having to be very vigilant to make sure that there are things in the environment that doesn't, don't upset um, the person with a brain injury. Um, and so, you know, that, that idea that they just have, they, they were constantly on, on guard. And we, we did hear some of that for civilian caregivers, but definitely the, not quite as pronounced. The other thing we, we heard um, from our military caregivers was this idea of having to put on a brave face for others. So the idea that you, even if everything inside feels awful and you are a mess, the face that you show to other people, you have to show a face of strength. My soldier never shows weakness. Um, and so that sort of, um, that having to put on a brave face for others. Again, not that civilians never talked about that. They certainly did. But it was just much more pronounced when we talked to our military caregivers. And then I think the final sort of thing um, that really stuck out to me in the focus groups was the um, anger. So both civilian caregivers and military caregivers were angry. They were angry about that this happened to the person with a brain injury, that this, you know, that they have to go through this. Um, but the ang the quality of the anger was different within the the military caregiver groups um, because they were really focused on on their frustration with the healthcare system um, and how they were having so much difficulty getting service connections for their veterans um, and you know getting the, the right type of treatment. They talked about the healthcare system being a maze. Um, and how it was so impossible to navigate. Um, and and I, I, so they really had like very specific complaints about the healthcare system. And, you know, I, I think the exciting thing for me was that we had support from, from DivVic to develop a new measure of healthcare frustration because that, you know, they recognize that improvements are needed, that even when services are available for, for veterans, oftentimes connecting them to those services is really hard to do. People don't know about it, um, and it's not until they sort of find the right person that they're able to really get connected to the services. And so there's a real movement within the, the military healthcare system to improve the experience, um, both the transition from active duty to veteran status and all the paperwork and stuff that happens there, but also to make sure that the services that are available, because there are world-class services that are available within the military healthcare system are actually being connected to the service members and veterans that most need them. And so it's been really exciting to sort of, <laughs> it was very sort of um, humbling to hear the anger from the caregivers, but to to see that something good can hopefully come out of this and that there was support for developing a tool that would help them help help the military system evaluate how successful their their outreach is to these individuals. Exactly. And that's something very important. You know, speaking of the outreach and also the differences that you're making with your new study, what do you expect to ultimately benefit caregivers? I'm really hoping that 
caregivers can get some more tools in their toolbox for how to, for self-care. So sort of the short term is to really give them some more encouragement and validation that yes, caregiving can be very hard, can also be rewarding. And, and I can do something to take care of myself that doesn't take a lot of time, right? Like maybe just taking a bubble bath or doing something small, recognizing, you know, something beautiful in the environment around me or thinking of one or two things to be thankful for. So we we can give them sort of little tips for things that don't take a lot of time that can help them hopefully feel better. Um, And again, as I said, it's that reciprocal relationship. So um, in helping the caregiver, we're really hoping to also help improve outcomes for the individuals with the brain injury. Phenomenal. You know, speaking of that, and how, again, both sides are being addressed, and it's very important that caregivers understand there are benefits for them, not just for the individual that they're caring for. What is unique about the type of research you do so they understand? There's a quote from the Wizard of Oz, um, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain, right? When Dorothy goes in Mm -hmm. um, the very end of the movie. And for me, like, I want to focus on the man behind the curtain. I, you know, I really, I, again, we have given a lot of, uh, there's a lot of research devoted to improving the quality of life and we have needs for individuals with brain injury. More is needed, of course. Um, but like, I want to pay attention to the man behind the curtain. And so, you know, for me, like, I feel like that focus is somewhat unique. Um, the other thing in terms of sort of my, my tool toolbox and in sort of the different types of methods that I use, um, we use real time assessments. So we are asking people about their mood in real time. How do you feel right now? As opposed to um, more historical study designs where you ask people at baseline and then you ask them, you know, three months later and six months later how they're feeling. I mean, you sort of get snapshots over time about how people feel, but like actually focusing on the day-to-day, how do, I, how do you feel right now? What are you doing right now? Um, and that opens up sort of a whole new Whole, whole new world of questions that we can start to answer. So we can look at a caregiver's sleep today and see, does it influence their mood tomorrow? And, you know, if I'm in a bad mood today, do I don't, do I sleep? Do I not sleep as well um, the next night? So you can start to ask questions about how today's mood or sleep or physical activity influences tomorrow's um, sleep, mood or activity. And so like much like looking at the reciprocal relationship between caregivers and the people for whom they provide care, um, we can look at the interrelationships between symptoms today and how they influence symptoms tomorrow and the next day. Um, and so, so that for me is sort of is is more unique. That, you know, using smart tests. So I, I talked about how we give these um, mood questions to caregivers every day. We, we just give them a couple of questions each day, but we actually are giving these questions as smart tests. So they don't see the same exact question each day. 
um, it, it changes. But these smart tests allow us to not ask what's your mood on a scale of one to 10. It allows us to ask slightly different questions each day. So it's not quite as boring for folks. And as I mentioned, these sort of smart tests are much less burdensome. You know, they take, they're a lot, they're a lot quicker for people to fill out. Um, and then, you know, also this focus on personalized interventions. So, you know, I talked about sort of the low, moderate, and high touch-ins when we're giving these self-care prompts, but really wanting to take that much further in our in our work and, you know, really start to tailor our interventions um, to the individual because one size does not fit all and one prompt does not fit all. We, we have some prompts that tell people um, you know, try listening to a song that you like today. That'll lift your mood. And I had a caregiver tell me I hate music. Music makes me angry. Um, and if we're giving that caregiver a prompt to listen to music, it's just going to annoy her. Um, so this, this idea of really trying to figure out for the individual what's the best match and to personalize the treatment so that, um, so, so that we're, People continue to be engaged and, you know, we can actually make a difference. And then I think finally, and this is, this is also sort of related to um, the pandemic and the fact that mm -hmm. a lot of the research that we were doing that doesn't allow us to see people in person anymore. Um, so we've really been pushed to be fully remote. So our studies are now fully remote. So we can engage caregivers across the country. Um, we talk to them over the phone, we send them the materials that they need over the phone, we walk through, you know, the, the downloading stuff into the app, but we don't need to see person people in person anymore to do these types of interventions. So I think we have a lot more potential to reach many more caregivers um, and people in rural areas. That's a, another thing we heard in the, the especially the military um, focus groups that, you know, the military folks that lived close to a VA hospital were, had much better treatment options than those that were in rural areas and much further away from, from their local hospitals. And so, like now, we're really positioned to do everything fully remotely. Well, yeah, and that's one thing I was going to ask is with this COVID pandemic, has it been affected your, affecting, I'm sorry, your research studies with caregivers, but you kind of just basically summed that up before I even got the opportunity to ask. Yeah, well, and we, we had to pivot like many people, mm -hmm. um, many researchers, you know, they shut down research at our institution, in-person research at our institution. Um, and they've slowly been opening things back up. But I, I think we were moving in the direction of sort of telemedicine and and doing things more remotely. Um, and it sort of, it pushed our hand. We had to sort of accelerate the pace at which we did that. But I, I, we've learned a lot. And I, I think um, it's been really exciting to have to worry about time zones when we schedule, you know, people for meetings. Um, because we're just reaching so many more people this way. Exactly. And it's opening up still opportunities to continue the study and let people get more involved instead of always needing to wait it out till when dirt, certain doors reopen. Yes, definitely. Well, you know what? 
Doctor, it's phenomenal not only your understanding, but also the difference making that, that you are behind the wheel with your team and you. Because like we recently have discussed and like you're aware of, caregivers are someone that do not get the proper attention span that they deserve because they are putting so much on their plate to do what is needed for others. And that Wizard of Oz quote is a really good example because they are behind the curtain and it does take the proper time, effort, and most importantly, willingness to give any survivor or any proper attention that they need to really be able to function both at any angles of life and most importantly, independently when that time or if that time comes. So with doing your study is really improving proper outcomes in all levels of wellness, not only for the survivors, but most importantly for the caregivers. Well said. <laughs> Hey, what you're doing is well done, and it's never going to die out, literally, because unfortunately, brain injuries are always going to be around, and even now with brain injuries, there are always going to be the need for caregivers, but caregivers need to understand that it's not all of them putting in and not getting anything out, even though they are getting a lot out because they're seeing, you know, who they're taking care of, getting what they need, but they also need to understand that they really do deserve to get the proper attention and proper care for themselves because it's not just one way or none it's a circle of love and needs to go back to be able to continue to move forward at their proper speed that they desire no, exactly i mean i think when um you know we we heard a lot you know hospitals frequently give caregivers uh, you know a packet full of resources where they talk to them, you know, when they're treating, you know, someone who's inpatient, but a lot of times we're not targeting them at the right time. Um, or, you know, we're so overwhelmed and you don't have to have a brain injury. It can be any doctor appointment that is sort of stressful and overwhelming. You get so much information um, and then it, it slips out of your head or you have a paper, you know, flyer and, um, like you don't remember where you put it uh, or or you happen to recycle it or you left it there. Um, so, so I do think, you know, it's my hope that we can start meeting people more where they're at. Um, and, you know, I, we recognize that one size doesn't fit all, but I really would love to push the envelope forward and really start to better understand, like, what does person A need at, you know, you know, immediately at injury and three months after injury and six months after injury, um, you know, and, and can we can we do a better job at providing resources for both caregivers um, and people with brain injury it, throughout the whole treatment and rehabilitation process and beyond? Exactly. I was about to say and beyond. There you go. Well, for, for our listeners and also for other people that we communicate with, if they're interested not only in your studies, but also in the research itself, what would be the best way for them to contact your research center to learn more? So I think the easiest way is to, to look us up on our website. So our website is CODA, so C-O-D-A dot med for medicine, M-E-D, 
.umich for University of Michigan. So that's M-U-M-I-C-H dot E-D-U. So that's coda.med.umich.edu. On our website, there's a link to our registry. So if um, anyone who is interested in participating in research can click on that link. It asks a few brief questions. When we have studies that come up, we contact folks and we say, hey, you know, you said you're interested in research. Um, here's a study we're doing. Is this something you'd like to participate in or learn more about? And each and every time we do that with folks, they can always say, nope, not a good time, not interested, um, or yes. Um, but so there's a link to our registry on that page. And then we have a, a lab email that is also listed on that page, which is pmr-codalab at med.umich.edu. Um, so that's PMR for physical medicine and rehabilitation, dash coda lab for laboratory at med.umich.edu. Um, but again, if, if you don't, if you can't, if you didn't write that down quickly enough, it's on our website. You can also go Google CODA, C-O-D-A, and UMICH, or University of Michigan, and, and, and um, you'll be able to find our site that way. But, you know, I, I, I look forward to hopefully hearing from people. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you today um, and share more about the work that we're doing. I, I think this is, it's, it's such important work. Um, and I know everybody probably says that about the work that they do, but um, it's also rewarding and inspiring to meet with folks every day who have had such an immense experience um, and have survived and many people thrive as a result of it. Um, but helping people get there and become more resilient is I think the hope. Exactly, you know, and I want to thank you once again, not only for your movement and this difference making, but also the opportunity to have you on the show and most importantly, learn more to refer people your way. So we're going to share the link. We'll hopefully send people your way to be consistent in being a part of this lifelong positive change that is going to be able to address, like we discussed, both caregivers and, of course, their survivors as well. Thank you for the opportunity. No problem, doctor. Thank you once again. God bless you. We'll keep in touch. We'll send people your way. And I look forward to seeing your research continue to blossom and, of course, building a long-term friendship. So thank you once again. Thank you. No problem. Have a great night. You too. <laughs> wow, everyone. What a phenomenal show that was. And you heard how there were key steps and elements with her research that can really be addressing to help you and your family reach new heights. And of course, most importantly, improve outcomes in all levels of wellness. If you did not listen to any of this or were so excited with all the information, really couldn't grasp the proper content, make sure to message us and we would definitely give you the link so you can learn more, not only about Dr. Carlozzi's movement study, but also get more involved. To learn more, and as always, stay tuned with our continuous positive form. Please visit tbionelove.org and follow us on all forms of social media. Once again, this was a phenomenal episode giving key elements 
directly to caregivers, how you can improve your lives, not only personally, but also professionally with the movement you do for your brain injury survivor and understanding that even though you're behind the curtain, people do care about you and you need the proper attention to move forward. Thanks again, Dr. Carlozzi and University of Michigan Medicine Department for your teamwork to help making people's dreams work and especially caregivers understanding that they are not alone with all on their plate. One love. Thank you so much for listening to the Brain Mastery Podcast brought to you by ABI Wellness. Be sure to follow us on social media channels at ABI Wellness. The statements made regarding the Bears platform and ABI Wellness have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. The efficacy of the Bears platform has not been confirmed by FDA-approved research. The Bears platform is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. All information presented here is not meant as a substitute for or alternative to information from healthcare practitioners. Please consult your healthcare professional about potential interactions or other possible complications before using any product. The Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act requires this notice.